I'm in Windows today. Oh boy. No. I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't use that kind of language. <laughs> well, you see, I I'm trying to dog food Cloud Nine, and Linux is just too nice. So if I'm in Windows, I'll actually use Cloud Nine. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 25 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have uh, Jameson Dance. Hi guys. We also have Tim Caswell, who is muted. There I am. AJ O'Neill. Coming at you live from the ethosphere of Orem, Utah. Yeah, we, we can hear a little bit of interference in the ethosphere. We also have James, or Joe Eames. Sorry, I keep wanting to say James Edward Gray. This is the wrong podcast for that. <laughs> uh, howdy, coming at you live from the Mars rover. Oh, there we go. You, you going to tweet from Mars? There's a 16-minute delay, FYI. Oh, is You're that all? You're really good at guessing where the pauses are going to be. Right. Yeah. All right, I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is James Burke. Howdy, coming live from Vancouver, BC. Awesome, I love Vancouver, I've been there a few times. Um, do you want to introduce yourself really quick for the folks that don't know who you are? Sure, I'm James Burke. Uh, I work at um, Mozilla in the Labs Group, and I mostly focus on open source uh, web app related tooling. I originally joined Mozilla as part of the Mozilla Messaging Group, and uh, I was doing an experiment around web-based messaging uh, systems. And then before that, I worked at AOL and was a core Dojo contributor. Awesome. So um, when you look at Require.js, it actually says the Dojo Foundation. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so uh, it's similar to uh, like uh, the Apache Foundation. Uh, it's just a uh, legal entity that's set up to hold code mostly, and then to deal with some of the, the legal stuff around uh, managing code. And so I really like it uh, versus something like Apache, where if you were to be an official Apache project, there's a lot of um, uh, stuff involved with that. Whereas the Dojo one is fairly lightweight. Uh, the individual projects decide how they want to run. It's just that uh, you should get uh, CLAs uh, for larger code contributions, and uh, and then use the, the foundation as the copyright um, or you, whoever gives uh, code contributions uh, gives the, uh, the license to the foundation to, to use them. So um, it's mostly just for, for legal stuff. Nice. And what is the CLA? Uh, uh, contributor license agreement. So if you've had to deal with any of these uh, larger open source uh, foundations, uh, they normally ask that you sign a thing saying, yes, I uh, am contributing this stuff. It's my own work. I'm not taking it from someone else. Um, and I'm giving you permission to use it. So it's, just, it's mostly to satisfy lawyers. Yeah, I, I think I remember when I talked, I talked to a lot of people at the Apache Foundation. Foundation. In fact, I'm actually wearing my Apache Con shirt from last year. Um, and uh, yeah, they had CLAs for, I think, both the developers and for the corporations they work for. So that right. the corporation wouldn't try and claim the code as copyrighted under their umbrella. Yeah, and Dojo has a similar thing, too. Right. You said it's to satisfy lawyers, but I don't think lawyers are ever satisfied. That's true. I think this is just they a... They hunger for blood. 
Yeah, it's a something they think you know. It hasn't really been tested. I don't think so. Uh, you know, it could change if somebody ever tried to test it. Yeah, it, it's kind of like having garlic for vampires. It's not a guarantee, but it works most of the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> or if it doesn't work, you don't hear about it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure somebody would hear about it. Anyway, so we're here to talk about Require JS. Um, now, I, I keep hearing the terms AMD and Require JS, and sometimes it almost sounds like AMD is a library. Is there an AMD library, or is Require JS just an implementation of AMD as kind of a concept? Uh, yeah, it's an implementation of uh, AMD, which is short for an asynchronous module definition, which is a really bad name, but. That's uh, what the original proposal had on it, and it just sort of stuck. I would have preferred a different name, but that's how, how it goes. Naming is hard. But, uh, but So AMD, uh, there's a, uh, an AMD implement group that discusses uh, the, the API specification, and then there's Obakey with the uh, specification, and there's a set of uh, compliance unit tests that uh, you, you can run to test your loader. And so, uh, and so the Require.js is an implementation of that API. Are they related to the Common JS guys at all? Yeah, a lot of it came out of uh, talking with the Common JS folks. Uh, it uh, grew out of uh, some of our experience in Dojo, where we had a, an XHR plus eval based loader, and um, there's enough sort of rough edges with that that we felt like it would be nice to have this sort of wrapped format, which is what AMD is, and. Uh, and so, in trying to investigate how best to go about that, uh, I tried because uh, Dojo had an X domain loader that was basically that sort of wrapped format that we would compile the uh, uh, well, not compile, but just convert the code, um, the, the regular Dojo module code into that format. And so the idea was, well, if we could just use that format directly, then there's less translation layers, there's less uh, discontinuities when you want to push code to CDNs. And, uh, and then there's some environments uh, that don't allow eval. Um, the Dojo, I mean, the Chrome extension system, I think, is going to that model where by default they, they won't allow eval. But so, uh, and by, at that time, then the CommonJS group had started up and they were um, working through their module system. They already had something I mean, going uh, when, when I started to inter interact with them and, and uh, Chris Zype, also from Dojo. Uh, we'll talk on the group list. And so then uh, we, we were trying to apply what we learned from Dojo, and then we, but we picked up the, the common JS concepts as far as like relative modules, uh, the idea of a uh, required to get a module export. Um, there's a, a lot of some of those uh, mechanics that we tried to match up on there. Uh, I think where we disagreed was uh, the common JS folks. Um, didn't felt that it was not right to author in this sort of wrapped format. They preferred to do builds and just treat the browser de delivery as a transport, um, which from our experience uh, was not uh, optimal. And one of the things for, uh, for Dojo is that um, you shouldn't need a compile step to develop web code. And I think that should be the ideal for any standards group that's trying to make uh, the, the web better in, in the browser. Uh, I, one of my uh, sadnesses, I guess, with CSS is that to, to really make larger CSS, a lot of people are going to um, basically compilers like the SAS or less or 
one of those systems just because CSS is lagged so far behind. But uh, but ideally, they should be uh, gearing towards like, hey, it's so easy to make in the browser. You just write some text files, uh, then you load it in the browser, and it works. And so uh, that was a one of our requirements in, in Dojo Land. Uh, and so. Uh, when we couldn't quite get agreement on that, um, we decided to take the, the pieces of the CommonJS stuff that, that were really neat, uh, the relative uh, references to, to, mod, uh, to modules uh, being one of the bigger ones, uh, and then just uh, apply that system to something that we thought would work better in the browser. I just have to say I really love that idea. I, I think it's a great idea to just be able to hit refresh and see your code changes. It It seems like such a small thing to have... I don't know, to go type some command to, to recompile your code, but it wears on you if you have to do it every time you make a change. So I think that's a great thing. Yeah, you, yeah. See, you see that in other server-side languages too, where when you start up your web server, it loads the whole program into memory. And so it, there's not a compile step, but you still have to restart the web server in order to load the code changes into memory. And, and it, yeah, it, it's the same deal. It's it's so much more convenient just to hit refresh and get the get the changes there. To some extent, you can get around it with file watchers. You can do that on on server side languages too. Um, but I, I know like Browserify has a file watcher thing, and and some of the other um, compiled uh, like module system things do. Um, but it's yeah, it's a good thing overall. Yeah, and I think you know, and for me, those are always like stopgap measures. And I think it also it, it increases the barrier like. Uh, once you go to that level, you have to. There's a, assumptions now on, uh, for example, maybe what kind of server system that you use. And so, somebody coming into JavaScript, uh, I think to, to reach a broader audience that doesn't, you know, the fewer sort of tool dependencies you have, uh, the, the easier it is to get adopted. Right. So, so what are the advantages of using an AMD system like Require over just requiring the JavaScript libraries that you want? You mean just putting them in script tags? Yeah. Like in, in the HTML? Yeah, exactly. Oh, man. So you have to, like, order your dependencies correctly in your HTML, which is weird. And uh, you have to put everything in global scope to do that, which is also weird and bad. And um, it's really hard to, to deal with. It, it discourages making your code modular, I guess. You, you end up with lots of, like, monolithic, huge, gigantic global objects because... Um, if there's a high barrier to, of entry to just adding another file, then you're not going to do it. You're just going to stick crap in the same file. Does that make sense? Yeah, agreed. Yeah, so I, I guess I talked the, about uh, the disadvantages of not doing it, and someone should probably talk about the advantages of doing it. Well, one of the biggest frustrations can be my files aren't in the right order, and finding them in the right order, getting finding the right order for them can just be a huge pain in the butt. Yeah, it, it turns you into a human dependency manager, and that's something computers should do, like for you. And so that's does, what required JS yes, does. So, does anybody have any uh, good reasons why it's uh, more advantageous to not do it? Because I can't think of any. Uh, what do you mean? To not use a to not require have a module definition. I think the just, only advantage is just like straight up least number of steps to get something working at all. So maybe if you're teaching someone how to program or trying to do like the basic minimal example, but for actual production use, I wouldn't want to do JavaScript without some kind of module system for the browser. And yeah. you also have to realize JavaScript is a community of amateurs, just like PHP is. Um, and so like this new era of actually designing code rather than just throwing things on the floor 
is a different paradigm. So a lot of existing code is difficult to work with when you start doing modules because it screws things up. You know, so it's like that refactor versus hack and fix kind of thing. So for a new app, it's great, but if you've got something existing, maybe it'll do weird stuff. Yeah, that's true. And there's also the um, fact that there's just a lot of friction in JavaScript when you're trying to put this this in. You know, how many libraries are out there that just don't support requires JS? You know, my fill in the blank here with your favorite library. So RequireJS does have some plugins, and James should probably be the one to talk about this more, but there are plugins to wrap uh, libraries that just explode global, global objects and, and make them into AMD modules. So you can take just like regular old JavaScript files that stick stuff on window, and it'll, it'll, I believe it'll turn those into just exported modules, won't it? Uh, well, it, uh, the shim config that's in the require just two though, uh, it will uh, load. It'll it won't do any sort of wrapping itself. It'll just be sure to load those uh, legacy scripts uh, in the order that you say. So you, uh, what you end up doing is you specify the dependencies and the exports in the require just config, and so then it'll load it, and then it'll grab that global and then use that as the sort of module export. So it kind of makes it look like they're modules, even if they are global, so you don't have to worry about ordering issues. Is that what happens? Correct. Yep. Yep. And so the so the only downside with that approach is that I mean there are the, the globals still exist, um, but for most apps that's that's fine. And uh, and then when you do sort of an, an optimization step, you don't have the flexibility of say loading some of those. Uh, if you have a shimmed library that depends on, say, uh, underscore, uh, for that to work in the system, you need to build an underscore into your uh, combined file. But, but I think those, those are both, uh, for most projects, those are uh, perfectly fine uh, limitations since it allows you to use the, the libraries you know, that you prefer. Is there a better way to use libraries that aren't, that aren't uh, like AMD modules, or is that the best way to just use the shim thing? Uh, well, ideally, you just wrap it in a define and then you do an export. Um, but you know, then you're modifying library code, and that makes uh, people uncomfortable and understandably so. So, um, ideally, hopefully, like there's these uh, UMD patterns, universal module definition patterns, where you can uh, get it so that if you're a library author, then you can uh, code up your code so it, it can act as a module or just do browser globals. Uh, so I think that's a nice resource. If, if library uh, developers would go to that system, uh, that would make it easier too. So how do you find out about the universal module definition? Uh, it's on uh, GitHub. There's umdjs slash umd, uh, and there's a set of uh, sort of code templates uh, for that. It's kind of just some boilerplate where you check basically for the existence of different loaders, and if you don't find any of them, you just stick it on the global pretty yeah, much, right? Right. Well, you, you detect for different uh, module APIs. So the, the common ones would be Node uh, or CommonJS style, uh, AMD style, or browser globals. Hmm. Yeah, yeah so it looks, just, looks like the last committer on that is J.R. Burke. Yeah. yeah. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> You know a little bit about this, huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think uh, Adi Osmani, he, 
I think he started the group, but um, since I had experience doing these things, um, yeah, I, I ended up doing most of the templates though. Right, that makes sense. So, do you do you ever find that, or do you? I don't know. Is there a major push out there for people to start writing their libraries in this way? Are there advantages to the library authors to do it this way? Yeah, well, I think it's the uh, it's it definitely makes it easier for for people that now uh, for like NBC systems in particular. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. Like once you once you've gone to that first step of saying, you know what, I'm going to partition my code, models, views, controllers. Um, that just naturally lends itself to be different files, different modules. And once you start doing that, then you realize, well, gosh, if I only had a module system, you know, this would be so much easier. I, I could be able to read the code better. And I think as developers get into that, you know what, we we, we do need to take some of these patterns, uh, break this code apart. Uh, you, uh, I think most library authors would see the, the value of having a, um, a module system. And so I think the, the only trick then is, uh, what do you think uh, is worth supporting? And so I think it, one thing to, to realize is that the ECMAScript is, is looking at a, um, a module support natively in the language for Harmony. It's not done yet, but the, the basic mechanics of it, as far as I have this dependency, I'm going to reference it with a string. It's going to give me a, a, an export value, and then I'm going to use that locally, and I'm not going to depend on globals. Um, that's the, the, the model going forward. So um, the so I, and so I think AMD fits into that nicely. It works today, um, and it has the least number of uh, gotchas you know, at, across the development lifecycle. So... Uh, but of course, I'm biased. Right. So, does RequireJS, if you author a library in a module, does it does it namespace it for you, or does it just load it into the global space anyway? Uh, so it keeps um, so it keeps the the module in a uh, in a space, and RequireJS actually has this multi-version sort of context support, so you can create different vats or buckets of. Uh, modules and so, um, but technically, you know, if you go on the the required JS object and you look in the like s dot contexts, you'll be able to find that thing. But that that's only because uh, I. But that's sort of internal data in a system where I could uh, properly hide things like in an, uh, an ES five environment. Um, you know that that stuff uh, wouldn't necessarily wouldn't have to be uh, globally accessible, and, and and most code doesn't access that directly. So I think the idea is by using strings uh, for the modules, and by making sure that your module doesn't name itself, uh, it allows the allows you to just, um, load multiple versions uh, of the same thing in the same module space, or in RequireJS case, you can also create a different context. So. Um, like for unit tests, uh, this is useful. You can have a, a, a separate sort of bucket that locks one or two dependencies and then runs some tests. And as long as you're not modifying global state, like the document or changing the DOM, uh, you know all that code is self-contained. Right. So, how widely used is required JS? Do you do you really have a good handle on that? Or uh, yeah, it's it's hard. Like I, for me, I think it's important to if I focus on the right things and provide the right support. Not worry so much about tracking, then things work out. So, 
but I know like there's uh, bigger projects. Like I think once you get to a sort of webmail class system, uh, you're going to want a module format thing. And I think IDEs, uh, so like uh, Adobe Brackets and then uh, Cloud9, they both use Require.js uh, on the front end. And um, and then so Dojo uh, itself. So as far as like AMD modules in general, like if you're a library author, it's like, hey, should you know should I worry about doing AMD or uh, opting into to calling the, the module API? Uh, Dojo has its own AMD loader. Uh, there's some other ones. LinkedIn has one. Um, and then there's curl JS. Uh, there's even one LSJS uh, if I remember right. They can store files in local storage. Uh, so I think you, you get a lot more uh, options, even if somebody wasn't going to use Require.js itself. I think AMD in general, it, it, uh, it does feel like it's growing. And if I uh, gauge it by the number of sort of support questions that I get, I'm getting more sort of newbie questions like that are basic JavaScript questions. And so to me, that's an indication that it's, it's really starting to seep into that uh sort of mainstream, uh, you know, day-to-day developer thing. Right. So one other thing I, I've been looking at require JS, um, you have like a project directory right on the web page. It shows it. And then in there, a scripts folder. Um, a lot of, a lot of times people have some kind of build process on their, um, system. So basically all of their scripts are going to be compiled and minified into one file. So if that's the case, when you try and require something, is there a way to work around that? Um, I don't think I quite followed that. So so let's say that I have like jQuery and jQuery UI and a bunch of other things that I need on my web page. And, um, you know, I, I just want to compile it all into one big file that has all of the libraries included in it. Can I still use require.js if all of that stuff is required? Uh, yes, uh, there's the require.js optimizer, which is r.js. And its goal is, so what it can do, it actually runs require.js, uh, either in Node or in Rhino. Uh, and then there's been a request uh, to have it run in the Windows script host, uh, which should be easy to do. I just have to create some adaptive modules. But uh, what it does is it'll trace your dependency tree, uh, you know, match, find all the dependencies, combine them into one file, uh, run it through a minifier. Um, it has native has uh, JS um, support. So if you have like has blocks in it, uh, it'll convert those so that when uh, you do the optimization, those disappear. What's uh, has uh, it was something started by um, uh, uh, Pete Higgins, uh, uh, Pete Higgins, uh, and it's it's similar to a modernizer. It's just that it's a JavaScript API for running uh, a feature or capability tests, and so um, yeah, so it's just a, a way for you to select different code paths. So so it will actually optimize out parts of your code that aren't available in the browser that you're that you're going to be running on it? Well, what do you mean it has, has JS support? Uh, so you can tell the optimizer, uh, you know, build, the, build this uh, set of scripts, um, but for this has test, like has uh, array extras, uh, say that that's true. And so then if you in your code, if you have like, if not has array extras, do this work, what will happen after that's minimized is that if block will be... Uh, oh, okay. So you can kind of assume an environment in your, in your build step. Right. Okay, that's cool. I didn't know that. I like that idea as well. And, and so then I guess that, so then the other stage of that is, okay, great. Uh, I've optimized all my code into uh, one JS file. 
you know, do I need to deliver required at JS, which is a dynamic loader, which is, uh, you know, it, it does more things because it, it allows you to load code from the network. Uh, you know, I don't need that anymore. And so there's uh, Almond, which is at on GitHub, jrberg slash Almond. Uh, it's a just an AMD API shim, which is a lot smaller. It's like one kilobyte gzip to minify. Uh, and that just provides the basic defined require API so that you can put that into your build script. And so now you, you don't need to ship require a JS uh, with your code either. Nice. So, 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 oh, go ahead, Tim. Sorry. So, as you guys know, my I've been working on backend Node stuff for the last few years, but recently I've been importing a lot of my libraries to the browser. And one thing that's really spoiled me in Node is I can declare my dependencies in a JSON file and then give someone my code, and they can just npm install and get their dependencies. And I've been looking for something like that in the browser, and recently I found Jam.js, which does that, and then uses Require.js to load all the modules. And so that's what got me using Require.js. And it, it's, it kind of breaks some of your rules because the, the Jam.js system is a central repository and there's only one jQuery there. There's only one whatever. It's kind of hard to like drop in Zepto instead. I mean, have you, have you seen a lot of increase in use because of this or have you not really heard much about it? Yeah, so uh, it does seem like uh, Jam.js is, is getting some uh, uh, some traction, which is neat because neat uses require, so that's awesome. But uh, but I also uh, I've worked on a thing called Volo, um, and it's I think it's at volojs slash volo on GitHub. And so the idea behind that is it uses GitHub as the uh, package repository and uses the, the version tags. Uh, that are stored in GitHub for the Git repo to find the, the zip ball for that version and you can install it. But what it also then allows you to do then is if you say, okay, in my package JSON, if you have a Bobo dependency section, you could say, uh, for jQuery in this case, uh, I used Zepto. And so um, the, if, the, if the project that consumes that, if it doesn't already have a jQuery installed, it'll go and use a, a Zepto in there. And then uh, with the require.js, uh, either with either by putting in a require.js config to say, hey, when, when somebody asks for jQuery, uh, load Zepto. Um, or if you were to just rename Zepto to jQuery, um, then you know you have some options to sort of swap in a, a different um, provider for that sort of uh, API that you assume by the uh, dependency name. So you basically just declare in some aliases. Right. Uh, yes. That's right. cool. I mean, I mean, the main thing I want is I just want to be able to declare my dependencies and not include them in my repo. And I really like the Simver versioning that Node has, but I mean, GitHub tags isn't that far off either. You just don't get all the magic, all the magic from Simver. Oh, well, I think you could still apply that Simver stuff to a GitHub repo. Like, I don't su uh, support that now just because I'm lazy. And a lot of times, front-end uh, projects are a lot shallower and simpler than uh, maybe a Node project. Because, um, like, in a, in a front-end project, you, you can't do the same thing as Node where, you know, it has this sort of nested uh, Node modules uh, installation for things that may conflict. And it's a great way to avoid uh, conflicts, but you, you got a, sort of a, a very big file tree on disk, and for the browser that doesn't make sense. But uh, so anyway, so 
but I think you could apply the, the, the same server stuff to a, a, a GitHub repo thing. Uh, it's just that you, you want to say it's greater than or equal, you know, to these version numbers. Uh, people properly version their uh, if their repos, which they should be. Uh, you know, I, I think that that can still be worked out. Okay, so someone just needs to add that logic to the client that pulls from GitHub. Right. So is is there would there be a way to write some kind of wrapper that would let you use RequireJS with npm? Because um, my my biggest problem with Jam, I think, is just that it's not npm. Like it's it's another package manager, and and it's another different place to put JavaScript code. And and there's tons of JavaScript code already in npm, and lots of it would work in the browser. Some of it is just like utility code that doesn't touch file system APIs or something. So it seems like it'd be awesome if you could use RequireJS, um, but also have the ability to do dependency resolution and, and and all the nice stuff that npm gives you. Yeah, so I think uh, for me, it's actually good that they're not the same because uh, npm uh, assumes um, some things that are not true in, in browser space. So, so in particular, npm is not good at saying, "Hey, I just have this one JS file um, dependency, and I want to install that." It wants to do these directories and have uh, it doesn't feel natural to me as a front-end developer to have this nested, uh, I mean, this directory spray on disk, uh, whereas I would just put everything in sort of like a scripts folder or a lib folder. Um, and, so, and then I think there's also the assumption that the code in there uh, works for Node. Uh, I think the uh, w one of the Ender folks mentioned one of the difficulties they had was... Um, you, that sort of assumption trying to piggyback into NPM, uh, it comes with some sort of node assumptions already. So, so I mean, uh, obviously, you wouldn't be able to use like the file system tools without doing tons of shimming and, and crazy stuff. But I'm just talking about as more of a code repository because there is code that that doesn't. I mean, it was written for Node, but it's just like a utility to parse date stamp date timestamps or something, you know, just like random little things that are already there. Um, so so you're talking about the nested directory structures being bad because, I mean, why would that be a bad thing to have a nested directory structure like that? So I think it's good to go to sort of a convention-based thing. Uh, I, this grows more out of my uh, experience with Require.js. Uh, it has a very nice convention where you say, uh, hey, if it has a base rule, and then if you say ask for jQuery, then it just looks up uh, for jQuery.js inside of a base rule. Uh, but once you have a, um, so the, the the browser, it only you only get one I/O lookup for the per dependency, and so I think it's best then if you also have a uh, convention that doesn't require sort of a configuration line for each dependency that you install, because that now you have this giant uh, config block which to me is, is a little bit more brittle and you're delivering a lot of code that doesn't need to be there if, if you just follow, I mean, you're delivering a code block that doesn't need to you know, go to the client if, if you just follow a convention. And so what I would like to see, like if, if there's there's a couple things with NPM, there's the uh, the registry and then there's the, the tool that downloads the code from that registry. So maybe one option would be to, okay, you can use that registry, but when it downloads, it knows, hey, uh, I'm not going to just put this into a jQuery you know folder under like node modules or something, but I'm going to put it in a scripts folder and call it jQuery.js. Uh, so that that sort of natural uh, uh, ID to, to, to path resolution just works out. 
you know, that might that might be an option. But um, but you know, the, so I think that's the thing for me where uh, I think Node was right to say, okay, you know what, we're going to work out a system that just works for Node. We're not going to consider browser concerns. Um, and so they've worked out a, a great system for them. I think conversely, us folks on the browser side, we should make sure that we work out a system that works best for us and delivers the code in, in a sort of layout that we would expect. Uh, and then, hey, if there's a, a way to match those things up uh, later, great. But I wouldn't want to start with first, try to uh, kludge NPM into um, you know, generating a, a, a browser-based project. Right. I mean, I recently have been porting a lot of my Node libraries to the browser, and the problem I had initially is you have different dependencies depending on which environment you're in. For example, there is jQuery and NPM that runs in Node, and it depends on JS DOM or something that provides a DOM. In the browser, you have the DOM, whereas some of my libraries might depend on Node's event emitter, which you don't declare that dependency in your Node package, but if you're in the browser, you need something that provides that interface. So you have very different dependencies depending on where you're running. You can't really reuse the same package. So one of the pities there is that I don't think there's a general desire in the community to standardize on a way to do that. I, I talk, So I've got Pack Manager, and in that I have a key in package.json called browser dependencies. So if you list something in browser dependencies, you can list it there. You can also give it an alias. So you can have like events.node and events.browser and alias both of them as events when you want to put them in. Um, but I've contacted a few of the other people that do some of the things like uh, I think it was Ender and um, one of one of the ones that Jameson had mentioned before. And there wasn't like they didn't really want to standardize on some sort of key or some sort of system of doing that. Yeah, because I think it's so uh, for me, I think this is the same thing with module systems, too. It's better to code up something that works well in the environment you're targeting, and then if two other environments find something that works together, uh, you know where they can commonize then, then I, I think it makes sense. But I think at this point, um, Node is fairly settled in its ways, uh, probably NPM too, where their their main focus is just making sure that they can provide a great server infrastructure, and so anything that you know makes. Uh, where they would have to do code changes for the browser, I think they're just less likely to do because their heart really isn't in it either. So, uh, and that's totally fine because they built some great server stuff. But, um, but yeah, I can see where it would be hard to, to find agreement. Yep. So, um, what what what's kind of the future of Require JS? I mean, have you put all the features in that you want, and you're just going to have it be the the lean mean tool that it is, or do you have other features that you want to put in? Uh, no, I, I just—it's mostly a, re, a refinement. Um, I've got there's a loader plugin support, so it's great for uh, transpilers. But uh, I think I, there's still some rough edges in there when you start to get um, really complicated with the transpiler stuff. So, uh, like, there's a CoffeeScript um, uh, plugin, loader plugin, so that you can load CoffeeScript in in, in an AMD system. And, um, but I think there's some the circular dependency support in that pathway is not as strong as it could be, and so uh, I've got an idea on how to get that working. And then I also want to use this, uh, and I think hopefully it's already been the true, um, uh, as a sort of a proving ground to try out some of the uh, ECMAScript uh, stuff. Uh, so that I have this uh, other loader plugin that's uh, required HM uh, under JRBerg on GitHub, where uh, it uh, you can code in sort of the existing ECMAScript module spec, and it'll convert that into uh, a 
uh, JavaScript that runs in today's browsers uh, loaded via uh, Require.js. Um, and so I'm hoping then to, to use that sort of thing to help inform uh, their process because um, I think there, there are still some things to be worked out uh, for that. So yeah, I'm hope, what I'm hoping in the future is that it's just uh, about stability, re refining how it executes, um, and uh, then hopefully informing something that'll uh, get into this you know, into the standard because you know at some point it would be nice for me not to, to have to do uh, required JS or AMD stuff. Right. So one other question I have, since it's an open source technology, what, what's the best way for people to get involved? I mean, do they need a CLA and then and then they're good, or is there more to it than that? No, like the CLA is really needed for sort of non-trivial patches. So I, I take a lot of like one or two line patches because uh, if it's just like, oh yeah, I was being dumb and, and, and forgot to do something, or uh, and or doc patches also are, are great. Um, so, and then there's also just helping out on the required JS mailing list. That's always appreciated because uh, it is seems to be getting a lot more popular, and so just the list traffic is pretty steady now. So, um, so the more people that can help out with that means I have more time to actually work on on core issues. And so, um, so yeah. So, so getting involved, I would say check out the required JS list, help out on questions. Uh, you can do uh, pull requests. Uh, you know, simple ones are. We, they don't require a CLA. If you want to, you know, refactor the the plugin system, then that would require a CLA. But, um, but yeah. Awesome. And, and then so, the, the other question I have is, you know, since you're no longer working at AOL under the Dojo project, um, does, does that really affect the way the amount of time and things that you have to put into Require JS? Yeah, I think one of the drivers for me for not. Uh, uh, for stepping away from uh, working on Dojo was required itself seemed to be um, it was getting enough steam and it, it needed enough of my attention that I, I really couldn't do the other uh, stuff and so uh, very fortunately uh, Roald Gill in the um, Dojo community he stepped up and he's converted their loader over to AMD and uh, he's, he's done a lot of the sort of the base loader and build system work that I would have probably done uh, and so, uh, right, I, I think it's just more about required JS and AMD stuff uh, taking a lot more time. And um, but it's great to see that the Dojo folks have been able to handle handle it themselves. Right. I, um, I have a specific. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I just I was just gonna have a just gonna say I have a question for um, people that are just getting started out uh, want to get into required JS. Do you have a recommendation? on where they should go, what the best uh, resources are for learning and implementing Require.js in your projects? Yeah, well, there's a getting started page on the requirejs.org site. Um, but I feel like I need to uh, rework that probably a little bit. It's probably a little old. Um, but I think that's a great place to start. Uh, there's also now, depending on, on your, um, uh, oh gosh, choice of other tools, uh, like uh, Tim uh, Brennan uh, from Boku, he's got a backbone um, boilerplate that uses required JS. So if you're a backbone person, that's probably a, a nice way to, to hop into it. Um, uh, but yeah, other than that, hopefully the, the requiredjs.org site is, is a good way to start. Um, and then there's the requiredjs list if uh, you have questions. 
Awesome. I have a question. I was doing some templating stuff. Um, it wasn't with RequireJS, but I remembered that RequireJS has a text plugin to, to load just text as a JavaScript module. Um, and I looked at it and have you ever like found something in the back of your fridge and been like, oh, this looks pretty good. And then you pull off the lid and like Cthulhu like pops out like these spores of like mold and fungus just like overwhelm you. Like I, I'm looking at the text plugin and it does like Java IO stuff in the browser. Like, why do you need to do that? I, I obviously don't understand all the complexities of, I mean, this is in, used in production all the time, so it definitely works and there are probably all kinds of crazy educations. Um, yeah, why do you yeah, use so, Java yeah. To, to load text? So uh, that text plugin, it, so how the RequireJS optimizer works uh, for loader plugins is it actually runs the loader plugin in the uh, the build environment, so because otherwise it wouldn't be able to sort of resolve the, the, the plugin resource ID. Sure. And so uh, for that to work, uh, since uh, the optimizer runs in Rhino and in Node, it has uh, code paths for those. Um, so you, there's a couple of options if you didn't like that. Um, you can always just write your own text plugin, and in when running in runtime, you know you, you load that one. Uh, while you're running the build, you point to this sort of uh, single file one that does all of them. Uh, and then it's also common once you do the, the build, uh, if you don't need to do any dynamic loading with a plugin, you don't need to include it. So uh, there's just like there's a uh, you can do an exclude in the in the RJS optimizer and then you can do a stub module for the text thing. So it just writes out a single line thing saying, yeah, there's a text uh, module, but it doesn't need to do anything. So oh, okay, uh, so okay, that makes sense. So it's running in Rhino, so it builds this Java string to get run in Rhino. Right. Okay. And I, th and I think the so why is that all in one file? It's uh, most people just like to deal with one file. Like it's it's hard sure. to say you know. So I think that's the uh, the that, that sort of trade off. I, I think I phrased my question poorly. It wasn't. I wasn't trying to say oh this is horrible code as much as like is this really how you have to write? Oh yeah, Java for required JS. <laughs> like, do you need oh. to write some some Java code in there? No, no. Uh, that one is because it's doing an I.O. access. So in Rhino, the way you get access to the uh, I.O. systems is, is just is through Java. And Java is horrible for uh, just wanting to say, I want to load some text. So yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, I'm sure if you look at the, the, the node pathway, it's a lot simpler. Uh, so yeah, it, that's just the cost of Java. Do do lots of people use um, the optimizer on Rhino? I mean, yeah, it, do all the community plugins work? Do you, I mean, is it pretty much the standard for them to work it with Rhino and with the Node, or do people just kind of pick Node because it's easier if you know it? Uh, well, I would just recommend Node because just the build itself runs so much faster. Um, but mm -hmm. um, but there are definitely people who they just can't take on Node as a dependency, uh, particularly. Sure. In uh, intranet environments where they already have Java, uh, yeah, uh, things built up, and this, that's one of the things that's been um, interesting for me is getting these. Once you work on just, if you worry about just the, the client stuff and not assume certain build tools uh, or build environments, there's these vast JavaScript communities that are not, you know, in Node and like the. Um, uh, the Visual Studio crowd, like they have NuGet, which is a um, a package manager, and they deliver some JavaScript code through there. Um, they have their whole other ecosystem, and uh, and same with the Java folks. So um, I, I think it's just which 
uh, sort of uh, subculture you uh, see getting used. But so, but I definitely get uh, uh, you know re- regular pings on on running in Rhino because uh, one of the issues I just had uh, that was fixing two point zero five was that the um, the uh, closure compiler use uh, optimizer seemed to have failed, but it was just a how you construct the, the class path. Anyway, so it, it's it's used. It's I would say though most people, and I would encourage most people to use the the Node one just because it'll be faster. And I think if you're a JavaScript person, being able to spin up you know, small server things that are JavaScript based. I hope I said JavaScript before, not Java, but um, you know Node is a great thing, and and it just runs a lot. The optimizer runs a lot quicker. Node. You oh, heard fine. it first here. Node is faster than the JVM. Quoting you. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Basically. Is there anything that isn't faster than the JVM? Oh no, the JVM is fast. Well, yeah, they, they keep optimizing it. It's just. JVM well, is super fast. It seems like whenever I look at Java code, it's 90,000% bloat and 2% what you need to do. Well, that's Java code. That's not the JVM. I, I guess it can't clean up that. Well, and I, I think for, for my use case in particular, uh, since I'm using Rhino, you know, there's a, this extra translation layer going on. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's that's part of the cost. Um, but yeah, Node, Node is uh, so much faster, at least for my use case. Yep. Well, especially for command line tools, with Rhino, you have to start up a JVM every time you launch your CLI app. And that's not, that's not fast. Right. Agreed. So, when, I have one quick question, and I and I mentioned this on Twitter a few weeks ago. One of the first things I noticed when I started using RequireJS is it's 80 kilobytes of code, and I mean, granted, you that's the bulk of that can be minified out. But is there is there a place in the world for a smaller AMD loader that like only supports maybe one AMD format and just the mainstream browsers? I mean, how how much of that 15k of minified code? Is used in the ninety percent case. Uh, yeah. So, um, did you just ask if required JS is bloatware? <laughs> no, I did not. I, I, asked, I asked how much of it is is handling the edge cases because I'm pretty sure all of it's needed for some edge case. Right. Yeah, and so uh, so there's a couple things. Um, so so there's of course there's IE which is. Um, Always a challenge, and uh, fortunately, with edge case. yeah, uh, <laughs> and fortunately, it's a pretty large percentage of browser use still. But uh, but it's with IE ten, uh, I think now it's good enough where I I can strip some things out with that. But you know, I, I try to make sure that it runs even in IE six. Uh, although supporting I, so the deal is supporting IE six through IE nine. It's it's the equivalent, you know. As soon as I can cut IE9, then that that's what would eliminate some of that code. Um, there, I, I have a little bit of extra code because I support the multi-version context stuff, and then um, I think the. Uh, but you know, a good portion of it is it's just hard to make a uh, network-loaded linker. So. Um, you know, you have these dependencies you got to fetch. You got to wait for them to load. You want to then wait for those dependencies to load, and then tracing that back uh, correctly. Uh, but that said, you know, I'm I'm open for for pull requests. Uh, I guess the, oh yeah, I guess the other the other maybe part of that is um, you know I su- maybe support some config options that other loaders may not need. Um, 
but yeah, uh, so I think that's the the strength of the AMD ecosystem. If you don't like RequireJS in particular, um, you know you're welcome to, to use another one. I, I would suggest like starting with Curl JS if if you didn't think that um, RequireJS was was quite uh, you know the size that you wanted. But um, it's like so. I guess when sort of. Uh, uh, gauge on the complexity cost would be like so for me I always measure minified gzip because then the gzip uh, sort of works out to like the amount of entropy you know the stuff that's different in, in, in the uh, in the file so uh, minified gzip um, required js is uh, probably close to 6k whereas almond is 1k so w what's the difference between those two um, almond doesn't do uh, dynamic loading so that's one of the bigger hits um, if you didn't, have, if you don't have to do dynamic loading or if you can you know do synchronous loading you can reduce the the size of the loader quite a bit, um, but but Almond, you know, uh, so I think that's the, where the, the the bulk of the implementation cost comes from, and I think for me it's also been about so so once you once you get to that level of uh, you know so one k versus six k uh, minified gzip, um, if you're using the the reason that you're going to want to use require is that well for two things you think mod modular code is the way to go and you want to get into that pattern now. And the other thing is, uh, once you have a, a module loader, it's much easier to make larger programs, like load uh, code on demand as you, as user clicks a button. And once you look at that aggregate cost of all that code that you're loading, it, the loader does not uh, factor in, um, you know, to the overall cost. I mean, uh, that's not going to be your, the, the bottom of the comp performance. Right. I mean, my issue is not the file size at all. Just take 100 pixels off your JPEG header, and there you go. I mean... What's 10K on a web page? The my, my main concern is just the the complexity of the the mental complexity. I noticed on the website that you support like 12 different signatures for defining a module between the permutations of require and define and require JS and all the various options. And do you want to do you want to promote a certain format or just does each one have its own strengths? Uh, yeah, so I think, so for the define format, uh, so it's really nice for configuration to just be able to say define object literal. Um, and uh, those signatures are about making it easier for the, so that the, the user uh, typing cost is not, um, you know, what they're, what they're focusing on. So, so there's the object literal form of define, and there's the, uh, hey, I'm, I, I just got two or three dependencies uh, I want to load. So passing the array um, uh, of dependencies and then a function that uh, the factory function that gets called with that array, um, that's, that's that's pretty sweet and it matches to what uh, a lot of uh, web libraries do today. Because uh, you, you'll see a lot that have the Im immediately invoked uh, function and that has, you know, they pass in jQuery and some other things. Um, so then, but once you go past uh, uh, maybe three or four dependencies, you, you want to align the dependency name with a local variable name. And so I think that's where the simplified common JS wrapper, where you just say define function require. And then inside there, you can say var a equals require, uh, you know, a stream. Uh, that that meets the the need of those developers because there are definitely people that want that alignment and I I appreciate that alignment when you uh, have more than four dependencies and you can say oh no no, no uh, module should have more than four dependencies but there are going to be top level modules that tie everything you know a bunch of things together and those are naturally going to need to 
access more than four. So, um, so I, I think it's all about meeting the um, de developer convenience and um, yeah, hopefully informing then any eventual uh, you know module of standard things. So, um, so yeah, and I think the the other, the other sort of complication then too is. Uh, when you do the, the simplified CommonJS format, where it's just define function require, in order for the loader to find the dependencies, it converts that function to a string and then parses out the require calls. But uh, once you minify the code, that, that gets hard to do. Um, and so you, you need the to sort of compile down to just the here's the dependency array, here's the function. And then you and then you don't have to depend on the function to string stuff after build. Uh, because there's also there's also the possibility that someday uh, the a, a JavaScript engine doesn't need to require uh, doesn't isn't obligated to uh, give you back a sort of source uh, uh, the source version of a like function to string like it could just return like you know compiled code or something like that uh, the string compiled code so. In those situations, we wouldn't be able to scan for um, dependencies. So it's also sort of a hedge against against that. So, uh, yeah, All right. I think that's where those come from. All right, cool. Well, um, we need to start wrapping up. Um, I did email you and tell you about picks, right, James? Yes, I've, I've listened to the show and I'm, I'm aware of the uh, okay uh, of that. Okay, because uh, I've I've sprung that as a surprise on a few people, um, and and I know that we probably have a few more questions. What we'll do is we'll do the picks, we'll wrap the show up, and then if you guys still have questions you want to ask James, and he has time, then we will um, we'll just kind of we'll we'll keep recording and we'll put it up as bonus content. Does that work for everybody? Sure. Yeah, if it works for James. Yeah, yeah it works for me. All right, cool. Well, uh, Tim, why don't you start us off with the picks? All right. So I the longest time every time someone asks me what testing library to use in Node, I say just use Node as a search. But I recently finally gave in and used Mocha by TJ. And it's kind of a balance between the Englishy BDD stuff and still sanely usable. It's a fairly simple test runner. And I don't know, I like it, it's fun. And you can use whatever test assertion library you want. You can use Node as a search or you can go crazy and use something that's based on should and you write big English sentences in JavaScript. And the one neat thing I discovered last night is you can combine it with JS coverage and get coverage, test coverage support in your code. So Mocha and JS coverage are cool for unit tests. Awesome. Uh, Jameson, what are your picks? All right. My first one is uh, that lots of you probably already seen it all around the internet, but the Steve Jag posts, um, I think it's called the Magic Bus or something like that. Notes from the Magic, Notes from the Mystery Machine Bus, uh, where he talks about how there's a software um, spectrum from conservative to liberal as far as what style of programming language and what style of software development you like. And uh, it's it's a Steve Young post, so it's super long. It's super, I mean, I think he's a good writer, so I think it's interesting. There's lots of stuff that I agree with and lots of stuff I disagree with, but it's a great read. Uh, and it made me think about some of the choices that I make as far as language and, and the way I design programs. That was great. Uh, there's another article, I think I read this a few weeks ago, but I just came across it again. Um, it was actually a Ruby talk by one of the core Ruby developers who's from Japan, and it's all about garbage collection, but at a really high level. It delves a little bit into some, some basic C code and some basic Ruby code, but I think it'd be pretty readable, even if you're not 
super familiar with those languages. And especially at the beginning, it's just all metaphors that explain garbage collection really well. It's also kind of cute because it has these like Japanese cultural um, metaphors that, that he sticks in that the translator kind of makes notes about. So that was a good read. And my last one is, oh, weird, I didn't plan this, but it's, it's a Japanese movie called Howl's Moving Castle. It's a cartoon. Um, I feel like I've watched all the famous like family entertainment that is in English. And uh, so I was just looking on IMDb and I found this movie that was rated super highly. And I had dismissed it before out of prejudice because I am a doofus. But I sat down and watched it with my wife and it's so good. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, Christian Bale is one of the voice actors and he does his Batman voice. It's pretty great. Awesome. All right. AJ, what are your picks? Um so just spinning off of Jameson for a second, I think the name of the guy that makes the movie is Miyazaki and he's got a whole yeah. bunch of movies. Um, yeah, I watched a couple of his other ones and they're all pretty good. Yeah, they're they're all extremely weird but but good. Yeah, Spirited I, Away, Ponyo, I'm ooh, trying to think. Um Kiki's Delivery Service. It's so cool how, I mean, it's not the normal Western arc of, of like normal intro and then the conflict builds up in the middle and then it ends with re- resolving the conflict. Like it's it's a lot different style of plot and, and things happen that seem really weird that they just kind of ignore all the time. Like, I don't know, it's it, it's very, you can tell it's from a very different culture, but it's, it's great entertainment. Yep. Um... So anyway, a couple things I'll mention. I set up a 120-inch projector screen in in my new living room. I switched apartments. So I've watched a few movies on it, and it's pretty awesome. Um, So I'm going to have to give a a big plus to projector movie nights as a pick. Um, Also, in aiding that, I would like to mention Make MKV, Handbrake, and Requiem. Make MKV, I think you only need if you're using Windows or if you're trying to do a Blu-ray, but it does the decryption on uh, DVDs and Blu-rays so that you can copy it to your hard drive. And then Handbrake on Mac allows you to, and I think on Linux as well, allows you just to straight convert from your DVD drive to uh, um, a file that you can use on your Android phone or your iPhone. Whereas on Windows, I think you have to use MKV first. and it was, it was a simple enough process that my sister figured it out. Um, and then Requiem is a program that, uh, for your legally purchased content on iTunes, uh, makes it so that you can use that content on any device of your choice. Um, you have to have, or, or you have to be logged in with the account that the stuff was purchased with, so you can't pirate with it. Um, which I think is good because I don't think people should be pirating, but I do think that people should be exercising their rights and that we shouldn't let the uh, media companies stick it to us. Right. Okay, cool. Um, James, what are your picks? Oh, we got to read there. Um, so I think uh, for web stuff, there's uh, Xtag, which is a uh, done by um, uh, Daniel Buckner at um, Mozilla. And uh, it's really neat. It ties into the web component stuff, being able to create uh, your own tags that sort of bootstrap into uh, code, uh, JavaScript code. 
so I, I think just that whole area of web components is neat, and uh, the object observe stuff on on the ES discuss list is also in that vein. Uh, then there's uh, the Firefox OS or BTG. Um, what I really like about that is I'm hoping that sets the, the stage for um, Apple and Google to just build in that those same sort of device capabilities directly into the browser and that sort of install of web apps themselves. Um, hopefully that's the model going forward for mobile devices and then uh, desktop devices. So it would be great to see that. And then the last movie I just saw last night was uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Uh, and that was, uh, yeah, it was just really neat. Um, uh, philosophical thing too so that's it for me nice joe what are your picks all right so my first pick is the book series um the lost fleet by jack campbell which is a really awesome sci-fi war um series of books and i don't know there's like 10 books in there or something like that it's way cool um my second pick is a card game kind of a card game it's called spot it Super awesome, fun, family-friendly fun game. Yeah, yeah, really awesome. Played it a ton yesterday. We probably played 15 games over the course of a half an hour with uh, 10 different people, different groups, and really just had a blast. And, and then my last pick is a Let's Code JavaScript, a test-driven JavaScript by James Shore, which I think I picked before, but I just really feel like I want to pick it again. It's James Shore basically just streaming himself writing an app from scratch using JavaScript, using test-driven development, and it's really super awesome. Nice. All right. Well, I guess it's my turn. Um, in the pre-show, I mentioned that my um, my car kind of blew up again, <laughs> and so um, I'm just going to pick some of the things that, that make life easier when you're working on your car. Um, in this case, the water pump on the new engine that we put in the car um, seized up. And when the pulleys don't turn, the belt doesn't turn, and eventually the belt will just come off. And that's what happened. And then it's not driving things like your air conditioning or your power steering or your alternator, and so you don't get very far. And since the water pump isn't turning anymore, it's not cooling your engine, which bad things happen, and it can overheat your engine. And so I, I locked out because um, it finally gave up right before I got home, so I could pull into the garage right as it was telling me it was overheating anyway um if you're going to work on cars like that um a good set of wrenches is handy but what you really want is an air compressor and an impact wrench and if you have if you have the the air compressor and the air powered impact wrench then a good set of sockets is is all you really need to get most of the work done and um beyond those you know a good hydraulic jack and some jack stands will get you the rest of the way so anyway i'm, I'm just going to throw those out one other pick that uh i want to put out there and it was something that uh joe reminded me of when he mentioned spot it another fun matching kind of game is set um, and it's, it's the same kind of thing you're looking for, um, different shapes and colors and patterns. And, uh, so they can all be the same or they can all be different, um, in, in the shape, the color and the pattern. And, uh, anyway, so you're trying to match three, uh, cards. And then when you pick up the cards, then whoever's dealing will put more cards down and whoever gets the most cards wins. And it's, it's a pretty fun game. So, uh, anyway, we'll get... Uh, we'll, we'll get the, the links to all that in the show notes and, uh, just want to thank James again for coming on the show. It was a great discussion. Yeah. Thanks yeah, for great. having me. 
I think RequireJS is really pushing the web forward, which is awesome. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to give it another serious look here. But uh, anyway, we'll wrap this up. We'll catch y'all next week. Um, and thanks for listening.